It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. All right. Things are not good. Let's just be blunt. Things are not happy in Metland. The Mets lose yet another series, another series against a bad team, another series in which you can complain about every aspect of this team for why they lost two out of three to the Colorado Rockies. Here we are on Rico Bronia. Where do you want to start? You want to rip the offense? You want to rip the manager? Do you want to rip the arms that come out of the bullpen that should not be in the major leagues? Do you want to rip the rotation? Where the hell should we start? I mean, we can start everywhere. It's a sub-500 team. They have failed in the last six games against bad teams. And what's crazy, what I'm really trying to wrap my head around, is how this stretch of games that the Mets are on right now, where they've played so terribly, came out of absolute nowhere. That's the thing that kind of boggles my mind. And I, I guess sometimes that happens in sports. Losing comes out of absolute nowhere. They're having a great West Coast trip. Everybody's happy. Everybody's having a good time. Despite concerns that we had about the roster, they were winning anyway. They lose those two games to the Giants. They lose two out of three to the Nationals. They lose two out of three to the Braves. They get swept by Detroit and now two out of three against the Colorado Rockies. So when you do the math, 0-2 against the Giants, 1-2 against the Nationals, 1-2 against the Braves. So that gets us to, let's say, 2-4, and 2-6, and 2-9, and 3-9, and 3-11. and 11. So we are in a 14-game stretch in which the Mets have lost 11 out of 14. And here's the weird part about it. When you look at the three games they won, okay, during this just horrific stretch, I think we walked away from all of those wins feeling lucky, feeling like, yeah, we won, and that's great, but we were lucky to win that game. And that's how this series started. Friday night, City Field, the Mets against the Colorado Rockies, a game in which I walked out of City Field that night saying this is the Tomas Nito sucks game because, <laughs> and, and I think you remember this at the beginning of this series, Buck Showalter decides to open up the series by starting Tomas Nito behind the plate, which when you take a step back is not the craziest thing in the world because Alvarez has been consistently playing two out of every three games, right? He is the majority of the time catcher. So if Buck Showalter is deciding, hey, look, I'm going to give the one start to Nito on Friday, as opposed to Saturday or Sunday, you could certainly say, what the hell's the difference, right? It's a fair thing to wonder. Uh, I think the reason he got the start, let's let's talk about that, is because of Kodai Senga. And we've talked about this before, that we have still yet to see Francisco Alvarez co uh, catch Kodai Senga. We haven't seen it yet. So not only do the Mets want to give Senga as much rest as humanly possible, which they've continued to do, they also want to give him Tomas Nito. And while Nito may have done a great job in communicating with Senga over the course of those six scoreless innings, Tomas Nito had the kind of night that caused the Met fan at City. I was in the building. I saw it all around me. It was the kind of night to make them hate Tomas Nito. And that's why, despite the Mets winning the game, right? one nothing, which we'll get to. That whole night was about Nito. He strikes out in the third inning. Here's a little bit of booze. He comes up with two on, two out in the fifth. I had a Pete Hoffman moment, by the way, in that fifth inning, in which I said to my friends who I went with, pinch hit for him. <laughs> I went early pinch hit, Pete. That's usually you. That was me because I'm like, hey, I don't know how many more opportunities they're going to get. Let's just go pinch hit for him right now. Buck decides not to. 
Nito grounds out on the first pitch. He gets booed. Then you got the error he makes in the eighth inning as the Rockies are rallying, like the Rockies are trying to put together a little bit of a rally. Then there's the stolen base against him in the ninth inning, in which he can't get the pull out of his hands. So you've got the error. You've got the stolen base. You've got the horrific at-bats. Tomas Nito is the target of New York Met fans on Friday night at City Field. And I said to myself as I left the building that night after a win, and we'll get to all the good from that. How much was there? But a little bit of good from that. I said to myself, oh, I think he's now public enemy number one. And that Buck almost has to be careful about when he starts him at home. Because every fan base, you see this across town with the Yankees, every fan base needs a target. And sometimes that target is fair, and sometimes that target is unfair. Nito, it, I, I stand by this, is really an unfair target because he's not that good, and he's not supposed to be that good. He's not making $10 million a year. He didn't come here as a free agent signee. And while his offense is far below like his average, which isn't good to begin with, and he hasn't been playing well, I'm not defending his play, we have to remind ourselves who he is. And that our anger is not really at Tomas Nito. It's at the fact he's playing. That's really what it is. So, you know, I've seen Met fans target Roger Cedeno. I've seen Met fans target Roberto Alomar, Jason Bay. And I think all those guys, they were fair reason to. Like, they were fair targets by us. The, the Nito one, as frustrated as I am with him, because he sucks, like I'm not beating around the bush here. He's not good. It's probably not as fair as some of our past targets, but that was Pete. That was a rough night. I mean, the stolen base in the ninth, the error, the the lack of hitting. He he's bad. He's bad. But Buck is smart. He kept him in. He did not pinch it from the fifth because he wanted to make sure that everyone had an opportunity to boo him later on. <laughs> I mean, that's really what it came down to. He bucket knows what's going on. And let me let's be honest here, okay? You sit there and say it's not Tomas Nito's fault. He's he's the backup. He didn't come here to be the starter. But the boos are purposeful. It's meant to remind Buck and Billy Epler, hey, dude, this guy should not be on the field. You need to take him off. So so you hit it. We're not booing Tomas Nito. We're booing the decision to play Tomas Nito. We're booing the decision for him to even be here. That's that's what it comes down to. But I'll actually agree with the opinion you had. I think it was a few weeks ago, and, and we went at it a little bit about pinch hitting that early in a game. The reason I would have, and I'm, I'm not even kidding, and I'm, I'm usually not one to pinch hit in the fourth or fifth inning, but I'll tell you why I would have pinch hit for Nito in the fifth inning of that game. I'll give you two reasons that I think I could back up. Number one, they clearly weren't doing anything offensively in this game. Remember, the Mets had been retired nine in a row to start the game from Sensatella, who's making his first start of the year coming off an ACL injury. He can't make it up. And outside of Nimmo's home run, which was the only offense in the game, the Mets hadn't really put anything together. And it's not as if Senga was dominating. And Senga's pitch count was high enough where, in the best-case scenario, he's only pitching one more inning. So if you're afraid of the whole, hey, can Alvarez catch Senga, my answer to that would be, he was pitching one more inning. One inning we're talking about here. Now, it is against the heart of the Rockies order, but nevertheless, it's one inning. And with first and second or first and third at that point and two outs, I don't know if I'm getting another chance. I don't. And at that point in the game, I want to be honest with you, I didn't think the Mets were going to win the game one nothing. 
I thought to myself, they're going to have to score more runs to win this game. I don't feel good about this. I didn't feel great about Sango, who was putting guys on base almost every inning, which we'll get to. And I didn't feel great about the bullpen. Like, they're just going to automatically get nine outs, no problem. So at that point in the game, I'm thinking to myself, they're probably not winning the game one nothing. Obviously, I was wrong. They did win the game one nothing, as we know. So I thought between it's a rare scoring opportunity, put up a better hitter, and the fact that it's only one inning I got to figure out with Alvarez catching Senga, I thought it would have been worth it because we're not talking about Luis Guillorme. And what I mean by that is Luis Guillorme is not a great hitter. We all know that. But he'll give you an at-bat, and he'll compete. And it's possible Luis Guillorme will come through with a hit. Tomas Nito right now is not a major league hitter. That, that's just the facts. He, he's not. And in over the course of his career, he's not really a major league hitter. But this is worse. This is horrifically The guy's hitting like 110. Like, I'm not making this crap up. He He's non-competitive. And most of the time, they're not good at-bats. So uh, unless you're laying down a bunch sacrifice, you don't have much of a chance with him. So I did actually think in the fifth inning, why not? Now, this is not one of my major buck critiques. I've got other buck critiques that we're going to get to throughout the pod today. <laughs> but it is a thought I had sitting there at City Field, knowing the result of what the hell was going to happen with Nito coming up in the fifth inning and first and third two outs. Nito's so bad, he's creating a new Mendoza line. <laughs> it's going to be the Nito line. It's going to be under 100. <laughs> it is. It is. It's amazing. Now, I guess where I'll give him credit is Kodai Senga pitched six scoreless innings. So if you want to say the chemistry between Senga and Nito is at an all-time high and that led to it, fine. Uh, here's how I'd rate Senga's performance. It was It was good in that he was always able to make the big pitch when he needed to, but his control was off. And, you know, he walked four guys in six innings. They had six base runners against him over the course of six. I'll gladly take six scoreless innings. And considering what the Rockies offense would later do in the series, they ended up scoring 17 runs in the next two games. It's obviously an offense that, while it's not great, is capable. They're capable of getting a big hit here and there. So that Sanko was all right. You know, he walks two guys with two outs and nobody on in the first inning. He gets out of it. Uh, he walks two guys with two outs and nobody on in the third inning. And he gets out of it. He puts a guy on base in the fourth inning with two outs and nobody on. He gets out of it. Puts a guy on base, two outs in the sixth inning, gets out of it. That was really the key that when he was putting guys on base, he was always doing it with two outs. So all he needed to do was get that last out to get through it. And he puts out the six scoreless innings and he throws 101 pitches and he wasn't dominant. But honestly, at this point, beggars can't be choosers. The Mets got six innings from their starting pitcher. He didn't allow a run. And that is the ultimate win. You know, when you go through all the starts the Mets have gotten this season, Kodai Senga's performance on Friday night, as shaky as it may have been at times, was a top five performance. I'm not even kidding. Like, if we went through every start that the Mets have gotten over the course of this season, I'd venture to say that the six scoreless from Senga Friday night's at least in the top five, right? It's got to be. Oh, oh, probably top three, unfortunately. And that, <laughs> the, let's be serious. You mentioned that he, he keeps on putting a lot of people on base, but... What's up with the walks? I mean, he's got, what, 22 walks in how many innings right now? I mean, it's it's embarrassing. He puts too many people on himself. Nobody's yeah, swinging he's, at certain pitches. So right now, he's not giving up a crazy amount of hits. He's given up fewer hits per inning. So he's thrown 32 innings, and he's given up 25 hits, which is a great number. But the walks, you're right. He's walked 22 guys in 32 innings, which is an incredibly high number. But what I like about him, is that early on in his major league career, 
he makes the big pitch when he has to. And honestly, that's the most important thing. I mean, I'm not saying I enjoy watching a starting pitcher walk four guys in six innings and put a bunch of guys on base, especially when there are two outs and nobody on. But he's able to make the big pitch when he had to. If he didn't lose the focus in the first inning and really the third inning when he walks back-to-back guys and he's able to get through that third hitter, he may have been able to go seven or eight innings because he would have kept the pitch count a lot lower. So, yeah, he walks too many guys. I mean, that's obvious just based on the numbers we gave you. But overall, when I look at this rotation, I look at the state of the rotation, which is still my biggest concern despite the up-and-down nature of this offense, I don't feel awful about Sanga. I still don't know what to expect from Kodai Sanga. And I think we're going to have to see him actually pitch on regular rest at some point because you're going to have to. Like, you're going to be able to hide it a few more turns around. The Mets have an off day built in after the Colorado series, so it's it's easy. You can do it at times, but eventually you're going to have to have this guy pitch on regular rest. But overall, it was six scoreless innings, and then the bullpen kind of scared our scared us. He went back to David Robertson in the eighth inning, which made perfect sense because they had Profar and Bryant and C.J. Crone coming up, so they had the heart of the order. So Buck went back to what we talked about he didn't do in the series against Detroit in the opener of that doubleheader where he went to Adovino in the eighth inning. He went right to David Robertson in the eighth, and it was one of David's shakiest performances, to be honest, because he walks Profar to lead it off. Bryant and Crone, especially Crone, hit the ball well against him. I think C.J. put it to the warning track in right field. Then he walks Elias Diaz, who all of a sudden has turned into, you know, a freaking superstar. And then Ryan McMahon hits that ball that goes off the base runner, that goes off the pinch runner Doyle that ended the inning. And I'm watching this from my view. I thought Alonzo had a shot at it, but it probably was going to sneak through for a base hit. So unless Alonzo makes some great diving play, which I think he was going to try, it's probably a base hit. It probably ties the game up. And who knows what happens from that? That's why we talk about the wins they've gotten, and I don't throw them back. I take them. They feel lucky. That was a very lucky moment in that game when McMahon hits a ball and it happens to hit the base runner on first. Then you go to the ninth inning, same thing. He goes to Adam Adovino to face Grichik, Castro, and then eventually Moustakis, who came up as a pinch hitter. And on the very first pitch, he gives up a base hit to Grichik, and then he steals second. And then a bunk gets laid down. And, you know, so before, before like anything could happen, I mean, I, I, literally three pitches into the ninth inning, the Rockies have the tying run on third base with one out. Mike Mustak is coming up. And I wasn't envisioning a home run, but I'll tell you what I was envisioning. I was envisioning just a line drive to right field. I really thought it. I felt it in my bones, especially when the count went full. But to Otto's credit, he got a big strike out of him. And then he gets Charlie Blackman and they win the game. And I was very, very surprised because everything about that game felt like the Rockies were eventually going to break through, whether it was the multiple times single walked back-to-back guys with two outs, whether it was the shakiness of Robertson's eighth, whether it was Moustakis coming up with a runner on third and less than two outs against Otto in the ninth. That did not feel like a comfortable one nothing win, but they got it. And I leave the ballpark that night thinking, all right, we stole one. Great. Let's split the next two games, win a series, and move the hell on. And that's literally what I was thinking. I wasn't even thinking, hey, they got to sweep this team. I know some Mets fans had that thought going in. I'm like, not with the way this team's playing. Just go win the series. Because they hadn't won a series in a while. Honestly, the last time the Mets had won a series, and it remains, is the Dodgers series. Think about how long ago that was. That was 
when Scherzer got ejected and eventually suspended. That feels like it was six years ago. So I left Friday night thinking, A, we're lucky to win the game. Lucky to win the game. B, we can never see Tomas Nito play at City Field ever again. Or if we do, he's going to get, you know, booed. And number three, just get me a split. And I still walked out of City because I made this comment to you last time on the Rico. I've said this on the air. I am not overly concerned about this offense, despite how bad they've been recently. And by the way, I stand by that because I look at the talent in this order. And I went through this last time, so I don't want to be redundant about it. But we all know how good Nimmo is. We know how hot Lindor can get, Alonzo can get. We all love Beatty. McNeil is reminding us of the hit machine that he is. So despite some of the guys we like to pick on, I still think this is a lineup that's capable of scoring four and a half to five runs a game. I I think that's what they are. I don't think this is a pathetic offense. The problem is they're going through a rut really up until Sunday where they broke out a little bit, but even then they didn't break out completely, which we'll get to. I still feel better about that aspect of the team than the other aspect of the team, but you win a game one, nothing. You feel lucky. The only run they scored was Brandon Nimmo hitting a first pitch home run in the fourth inning, but a win's a win. They won the baseball game, get the hell out of Dodge and hopefully get a split against Colorado. Spoiler alert. They did not get the split against Colorado. If you didn't watch any of these games and you listen to the Rico for your Met updates, you know, that's not exactly what happened, but they did win the game. One, nothing. Senga got the victory and we move on. Can I fight you on something Go real ahead. quick? I, I I don't, and I we don't have to get into the minutia of the lineup. Go ahead. But it's really not that good. And, and, I, and I'm not talking about the the top five hitters. I'm not talking about Beatty. I'm not talking about the rookies. I'm not worried about Alvarez. There is too many one-dimensional players on this team that come from the bench but get starting time, and that's a problem. Yeah, I don't think there are very many lineups in baseball that have all-stars one through nine. Like, I don't really think there's many of them, but I do see a lineup that once Canna's the productive player he's been back of the baseball card, I assume, and I think you do too, that Alvarez can be a plus offensively behind the plate. I don't think they have that many negatives in their order. I don't. Now, on a given night, when Buck decides to start Luis Guillorme or Tomas Nito, I can't fight that. Like, obviously, I'm not defending those guys, but I think when... Things are going better, and they're not right now. I think this is still the strength or one of the strengths of this team, which I get more into as we get to the third game because obviously that's when Buck made his big lineup change that I think all of us love. 